Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans 14, and our text is from Matthew chapter 7. In Romans 14, I believe the Apostle Paul is working with some of the principles of Matthew 7. He learned from our Lord Jesus, and so we want to read from Romans 14, the verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of God, Romans 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To be to his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall, shall give account of himself to God. Therefore let us judge, not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. The word of the Lord. And we also turn to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 1, where the Word of God reads, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, 
lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. This is the word of God. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 63, stanzas 6, 7, and 8. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, (coughs) one of the more difficult aspects of being brothers and sisters to each other, members of the same family of God, is that there are times when we are called upon to correct and admonish each other. In fact, if we see it rightly, we will know we are called to do that much more often than we do. Whether we have something against someone else, or we know that someone else is something against us, we really are called by our Lord God, our Lord Jesus, to get busy. In Matthew 5, verse 23, the Lord Jesus tells us what we are to do when we remember that our brother has something against us. And he doesn't say, you wait till your brother comes to you. No, he says, get up and go and talk to your brother and deal with it. And Matthew 18, verse 15, he tells us what we do when we have something against our brother. So again, we we, we need to take care of it. It cuts two, two ways. No one in the congregation of Christ is to have anything of a significant nature against someone else. If we If so, we must do something about it and be reconciled as soon as possible. A striking verse recently came to my attention in in Romans 12. Romans 12 is really about, the last part of it is really about how the people of God, the church of God, behaves with itself and among itself. And in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with every one. Are you at peace with everyone in this building? Are you at peace with everyone among the people of God? This is the command of the Word of God. But as we said, this is by no means easy. This is probably the most difficult aspect of the church life. Criticizing is easy. Gossip is quite natural, and backbiting is easy as well. But mutual exhortation and correction and encouragement in the face of sins and shortcomings, that is so much harder. How shall we do this? Well, I think there are a few passages that teach us how to do this better than the words of our Lord Jesus Christ before us this morning. We need to realize this too is part of the greater righteousness that we receive in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He said, he warned us, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't think he was talking about quantity. He's talking about quality. The quality of your righteousness must exceed because you go deep in the Christian life, deep in who Jesus is, and deep in terms of the consequences of belonging to him and being part of his family. It's about how to be righteous without being self-righteous, how to discern without judging and condemning. Not easy stuff. God's Word comes to under this theme. The Lord Jesus teaches us about the manner in which we ought to deal with each other. He speaks to us about judging and being judged, about specks and planks, and about dogs, or pearls and pigs. Judging and being judged, specks and planks, pearls and pigs. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, there's probably no age 
in which it's more important that we correctly understand what the Lord Jesus is saying here than the present one. For is this not what is characteristic of our age? It's an age when strong opinions and resolute convictions and outspokenness are not appreciated. It's been called a postmodern age and just means an age when relativism reigns supreme. It's been after postmodernism, they say there are other things. It's also been called metamodernism. The most recent thing that I named that I heard is hyper-hybridism. It means absolutes have disappeared. All things are relative. It means, <coughs> it really concretely means, and it ends up being that all opinions are tolerated and all opinions are legitimate, except it seems for that of Christians and that of the Word of God. And so to be sure, if you raise your voice in favor of this toleration, they will listen. If you speak in favor of abortion, favor of homosexuality, those who say everything is permitted, if you walk in one line with that, you will have an audience and will be appreciated. But if you speak against this, if you are vocal about the issues of our day, you will be ignored, treated as a throwback to a former age, and people wonder how you still survived and dismissed as belonging to that small minority of religious fanatics. And see now, if they know anything about the Bible, they will throw this passage before you. Judge not, it says, is hurled into your face to suggest the truly Christian person is a person who should never express an opinion about others. They must be, be no judging whatsoever. We must be relaxed and indulgent and tolerant and allow almost anything for the sake of the, the peace of our country and our world. All ability to discern, any opinion about the difference between right and wrong is gone. But is that now what our Lord Jesus is teaching us? It doesn't take too long for us to see that no, it's not. Read a little further, 10 verses later, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Right there, he pronounces his condemnation upon certain teachers, but also demands that his followers recognize such teachers for what they are. That calls for discernment. That calls for you to use some discriminating faculties to know the Bible and to be able to say, well, that is false. That doesn't work. So to the apostles Paul and John and more of the Bible writers, are they men who are consumed by this easygoing attitude of our time? We read of a Paul who pronounces a curse upon anyone who comes with a different gospel than the gospel of Christ. We read of a John who tells us to give no assistance whatsoever to someone who is a false prophet, to someone who doesn't acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He says, you can't support such a man. You can't have this person in your house and, and feed him and, uh, and offer him room because then you're supporting him, and you're supporting a false gospel. Such a person, he says, is a deceiver and an antichrist. We read of a Peter who calls men springs without water, mist driven by a storm, slaves of depravity. Is that after the style of our day? Is it then a contradiction with the words of our Lord Jesus, judge not? Certainly not. But you see, the word to judge can mean more than one thing. It can mean to discern, to judge judicially, or it can mean to be judgmental and condemn. It's the context that always decides the shade of meaning of a word. And the context here argues for the latter. It means 
Do not be judgmental. Do not condemn. Do not adopt a critical spirit, a condemning attitude. The same word is used twice in exactly the same way in Romans 10, 14, Romans 14, 10. <coughs> why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So let us each give account of himself to God. What then is the danger that our Lord is warning us against? It's the danger of a self-righteous spirit. A spirit that always has self at the back of it. A spirit that's motivated by a feeling of superiority. A feeling that we are all right and others are not. When the Lord Jesus spoke these words, he obviously had in mind the Pharisees. Were they not the ones who condemned him? Who had their minds made up about him from the very beginning and therefore crucified him in the end? You could say that what the Lord Jesus is saying here is, do not be hypercritical. For to be critical and discerning about matters before you, that's proper, at times even demanded. But to be hypercritical is not. It means one delights in criticism and searches for it. It means whenever we approach something, we find, we approach it expecting to find faults and then rejoice when we find them. That's hypercriticism. It's an attitude that's there in all gossip. It's not always so that the things we say in gossip is un, are untrue, but it's always the case that the one who gossips says it maliciously, without a desire to build up, no concern to instill discernment, wants only to puff himself up. I'm not as bad as that, or to be heard, or to enhance one's own reputation. When are we judgmental? Well, brothers and sisters, are there not situations in the church or even in the world, even among the governments, where actually we don't have all the facts? We don't really know what happened in this particular incident or in this, with this particular family in the church. We've not spoken with that person, but we have our judgment. We have our minds made up, and this is what should happen, and this is what the consistory should do, and this is what the authorities should do. We are judgmental and hypercritical when we fail to realize there are times that the best thing we can do as the people of God is withhold our judgment. Why do you think it's God who is the final judge? Because this God is omniscient. That means He knows everything. He knows what happened. He knows the agony of people's hearts. He knows their trials. So what must we do? We must leave it to God. Don't play God, leave it to Him and to those He placed in positions Himself. The Lord Jesus goes on, He says, do not judge, why not? That you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What's the point here? Well, there are those who see this as a principle that only involves other people. It means don't judge other people, because otherwise those, those people might judge you. Don't be judgmental and hypercritical towards others so that others will not be hypercritical and judgmental about you. The person with a critical spirit is inviting a lot of criticism on his head. There's truth to that, a lot of truth. But the words of our Lord Jesus reach much deeper than that. What the Lord Jesus is saying is this, judge not or you too will be judged. By whom? By God. 
The point is this. There's a sense in which God judges every person already in this life. Punishments and difficulties come from God, not only in life to come, but even here and now. If you want proof of that, think of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul's talking about Lord's Supper celebrations. And he says, this is why some of you people have, 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 are weak and some have died, because God sees what's going on. He says, no, that shouldn't be happening. Besides that, it's an inescapable fact that in the end, all of us will be judged by God. I want to talk about the fear of God. All of us will be judged by God. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God as it is determined, eternal death or eternal life. And rewards in heaven, you've got to be judged to talk about there's a degree of weal in, in heaven and a degree of woe in, 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 in the other place. Even those Christians sometimes have the notion they will be excluded. The Bible is clear. We will be there too so that our lives can be assessed. What we have done with God's gifts examined. The rewards and degrees of glory declared. Well then realize this. If we are using a particular exacting standard upon others, God himself will use that same standard upon us when it comes to the matter of judging us. The measuring rod we apply to approved and unapproved behavior in our own circles is taken from our hands, as it were, in, in God's hands, and is applied then to us. That's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? How this ought to urge us to watch our mouths and check our hearts, for this is the word of our Lord. If we're judgmental with others, God may be judgmental towards us. The judgment we pronounce is the judgment with which we will be judged. The measure we give is the measure we get. It means if we are particularly critical about the untruths and half-truths of others, God will hold that same exacting standard towards every slanted story, every stretched report we've ever told. If we're especially biting about the business practices of others, God will use the same with respect to how we use our money or our time, or the obligations of our employment? Do we want the standard of God's justice to be applied to ourselves in the same as we, in the same way as we are so prone to apply it to others? Jesus is teaching us the fear of God. The fact we all overlook again and again is this, the fact that you and I have neither the, the competence nor the authority to sit in judgment upon fellow human beings. Whenever I do anything of this sort, I'm placing both myself and my brothers in the wrong role. Since when have they been my servants, Paul asks in Romans 14, that they are responsible to me? Since when have I become their Lord and their judge? Are we not all servants of Christ? As Paul writes to the Romans, who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And as Paul once wrote himself about himself, judge nothing. And Paul writes this when he was opposed by evil men. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. The simple but vital point he's making is one he learned from our Lord Jesus. Man is not God. No human being is qualified to be the judge of his fellow human beings for we cannot read each other's hearts or assess their motives or know what's really going on. 
To be judgmental is to presume arrogantly, to anticipate the day of judgment, to usurp the prerogative of the divine judge. It is playing God. But to be human, to be truly Christian, is to this. It's to realize to the depth of our own being. Those various sins that I condemn other people for, I'm capable of each and every one of them. God, spare me. Not that I'm necessarily going to do them, each one of them, tomorrow, the next day, but, but this is the condition of our fallen humanity, stunning, stumbling. We are capable of each and every one of them. No better cure for a hypercritical, hypocritical spirits, the awareness of our own sin, the awareness of our own need for the forgiveness of sins. I may have said it here before, if you don't know yourself to be the worst sinner you know, you don't know yourself very well. Because you know what? There are thoughts that you have had, that I have had. There are thoughts, there are dreams that I have had. There are nightmares I've had. There are things I, 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 I could be capable of if I'm left to myself. But I'm not going to talk about those. Are you going to talk about those things over coffee? No, you're going to talk about your victories, the good things you did, and the, and the proud things, the things you're proud about. Not about those other things. You're embarrassed about that. If you don't know yourself as the worst person you know, in the depth of your being, you don't know yourself very well. It's the heart and the basis of the gospel. So let us be warned. If we presume to be the judge, there will be no way out for us. We shall be judged all the stricter. If you have so lived and so judged, what are you going to plead when you stand before the one judge? You can't plead ignorance of the law. Or are you going to complain, it's not fair and just and right, when you did the same thing with others? If we spent our lives occupying the bench, insisting on unyielding justice for others, we should not be surprised when we stand before the bench. We're judged by our own standards. You have no excuse, Paul says, who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever you point, you judge the other. You are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. It's a message that can at the same time be comforting. At least Paul draws comfort from it in his own ministry. When the going gets rough, he says to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4, a passage I preached on the very first day I was ordained as a minister of the Word decades ago. I care very little, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, if I'm judged by you or any human court, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul will not answer to people, in other words. He's not engaged in a popularity contest. He's not a servant of men. He's a servant of God. Therefore, his concern is, because he fears God, his concern is the judgment of God. The same applies to our Lord Jesus. Think of how much he suffered because people judged him wrongly. His life comes to an end on the tree of the cross because some think they must play God and pass judgment and be rid of him. But this is his comfort too. It is God who judges he and he alone. And so it leads us to our second point for the Lord Jesus gives us examples to drive home the point. He speaks about specks and planks. For he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? 
People sometimes talk about humor in the Bible. Is there humor in the Bible? It seems to me that Lord Jesus never comes closer than, than this. It's a ridiculous picture. What does Jesus sketch? Two pictures from the carpenter's shop. He grew up with a carpenter, his father. He speaks about a man who has a whole two-by-ten in his eye and hasn't noticed, and hasn't noticed the two-by-ten in his own eye, but he managed to see the little sliver piece little sliver of wood in his brother's eye. And then this man with a, with a plank in his eye is busy acting as an eye doctor trying to get that speck out of sawdust out of his brother's eye. Ludicrous situations to be sure. But yet when the caricature is transferred to us and we are said to be such persons, we don't appreciate the humor. But the fact is, this is us. This is our nature. This is the depth of our unrighteousness. We are the ones who have the fatal tendency to exaggerate the failures of others and minimize the gravity of our own. We are the ones with a rosy view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others. We can see the speck in somebody else, but we don't see the plank in our own eyes. There are illustrations of this in the Bible. You can find one, 2 Samuel 12. You know the story. King David has a large harem. Nevertheless, he lusts after another man's wife and he seduces her, has her husband killed. He's guilty of nothing less than adultery and murder. And then there comes Nathan the prophet. And Nathan comes telling a story, a story about a, a poor farmer whose one little lamb has been stolen by a rich, powerful neighbor with a large flock of his own. When David hears it, he becomes enraged and is ready to mete out justice. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. But then Nathan says to David, you are the man. David, incredibly blind, has not noticed a plank in his own eye as if fumes over the speck of sawdust in the eye of the rich farmer. And lest we now point the finger at David, make the same mistake, let's realize we are the same. It's very easy to focus on the sins of others, denounce them with gusto, while remaining disturbing oblivious to the sins which we ourselves are especially attracted to and maybe even commit, and nobody else knows. And let us realize the plank in this case is not the fact that we commit a sin of similar, uh, a similar sin of greater magnitude. That's what people sometimes think. They think they can point out sin in others as long as they have not committed the same thing themselves. What is the log that blurs our vision? The log is our hypocritical spirit. The log in David's eye was not just his act of murder and adultery, it was the hypocrisy that he was living in and the false front he was putting up with, so too with us. It's our condemning spirit, our unforgiving, malicious nature that blurs our vision and condemns us. And if our vision is blurred, despite all our concerns, supposedly, we too will be prevented from doing anything positive for our brother or sister or the church. It's often said it's a hopeless situation when the blind lead the blind. But there's something else that's more hopeless than that. It's the blind operating on those who are in danger of going blind. It's the blind eye surgeon attempting to remove a speck out of a man's eye. Would you go to a doctor, a surgeon for your eyes, when you know the surgeon himself is blind? If a blind man is useless in leading the blind, how much more useless is a blind eye surgeon 
That is what our Lord is teaching us. If you want to be able to see clearly, to remove the minute speck of the sensitive eye of the other person, make certain your own eye is clear. You cannot help in removing a splinter when there's a joist in your eye. And no matter how large the sin of your brother may appear to you, it's always only a sliver and a splinter if there is in you that hypercritical, hypocritical spirit that exalts you above him. Then it is the case of physician, first heal yourself. Our Lord even drives home the point a third time when he speaks about pearls and pigs and, and dogs. For it seems if with specks and planks we have an example of humor in the Bible, here in my opinion, the best exegesis I know of this passage is that we have an example of sarcasm. For you see, according to the traditional interpretation of this verse, which speaks only, which speaks not about, about not giving dogs what is holy and not throwing our pearls before swine, what Jesus is talking about, according to them, is that we should not spread the gospel anymore to those who have utterly rejected it. You don't have to spread, they sometimes say, you don't have to spread the, the gospel to the rest of Canada because most of the Canada has, has heard the gospel and, and now we don't have to bring it anymore. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Really? There's no sense, they say, to spread the word of God among those who have been hardened in their unbelief. But it's questionable whether Jesus teaches that. Would Jesus really be calling unbelievers dogs and pigs? Besides, is that not rather out of character with the rest of what we have in the Sermon on the Mount? And one rule regarding the interpretation of Scripture is that we keep its context in mind. But what do the verses before this or the verses after this have to do with such a thought? Where in the, in the whole Bible, where in the Sermon on the Mount are we ever told that we shouldn't spread the gospel because of this reason or that reason? Where? I don't find it anywhere. Instead, this is what is meant here. Verse 6 needs to be read along with verses 1 to 5. The point is, those who are long on judgment, those who are ready to criticize, if we're always <laughs> ready to criticize, <coughs> then we are the ones who treat others and pig, as dogs and as pigs. Then we are the ones who treat others with disdain. We look upon them as unclean animals. Those dogs and pigs, what are they doing in the church? We are the ones who think those other despicable persons need to be rejected out of our community. Well, Jesus says, if you really think they are dogs and swine, why do you give them holy things? Why do you throw pearls at them? It's sarcasm. If ever there was sarcasm... Holy things are, are things you should bring to the temple because they can be useful there. They're holy. Pearls are things you can wear around your neck and make yourself more beautiful. It might make you look better. Why not use them for this, those purposes then? If these other people are so bad as you think they are, why do you even bother with them? Surely your judgments, your great religious insights, your pearls of wisdom, your righteousness and holiness, surely they can be used for greater purposes. It's pure sarcasm. And you better do that, Jesus says, because you know something? It's a dangerous thing to throw things at animals. Sometimes animals bite back. Sometimes animals turn around and attack you. If you think they're animals and you attack them, look out, they might bite back. Who is foolish enough to provoke a pit bull? If they're really dogs in your judgment, beware. Their bite might just be worse than yours. 
They may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Here it's true indeed. Verse 6, with the measure you judge, you will be judged. Those who dish it out better be prepared to take it. Giving holy things to dogs might just lead to your own destruction. Well, then is the solution. Well, Jesus does tell us about that. For notice that actually the Lord Jesus doesn't say, forget about your brother altogether. He doesn't say, just ignore the problem that you perceive your brother has. No, notice what he says in verse 5. Once you've taken the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The point is, it's only when we have forsaken our haughty, judgmental spirits that we're able to help our brothers and sisters in real acts of Christian love. It's only when we know to the very depth of our being that it's only by the grace of God that we wretched sinners are forgiven ourselves that we'll be able to lend a hand to those who, like us, are yet struggling with that sin. To come back to that medical analogy for a moment, realize this. The procedure of taking a sliver out of an eye is a very difficult operation. There probably is no organ that is more sensitive than the human eye. The moment the finger touches it, it closes up. It's so delicate. And so intricate are its components. What the eye surgeon surely requires above everything else is is patience (coughs) and calmness and coolness. Well, then transfer that to the realm about which we speak here. In trying to get at that sin in the life of your brother or sister, you're approaching a person, a person with sensitivities, a heart, an ego, being. Isn't it a very difficult and delicate thing? How are you going to get that sliver out? There's only one thing that matters, and that is that you should be humble, that you should be sympathetic, that you should be so conscious of your own sin and your own unworthiness that when you find it in somebody else, far from condemning, you feel like weeping. You are full of sympathy and compassion. You really want to help. You know this is a sensitive thing. Your concern is not with yourself. Your concern is with him or her. You've so enjoyed getting rid of the thing yourself that you want him or her to have the same pleasure and the same joy. It's difficult, no doubt, but God help us. Only when we cast out the beam, the plank, the joist, whatever you call it, in your own eye, when we are in this humble, understanding, sympathetic, generous, charitable spirit, will we be able to, as the Scriptures say, speak the truth in love. That's what, ne- what is necessary. Not just speak the truth. Well, it's true, isn't it? People say, but speak it in love. There are people who can speak the truth in love to you, and when they've spoken it to you, you know it's the truth. You thank them for it, and you want to go the way you want to go. But there are other people who tell you the same truth, but in such a manner that you're led automatically to defend yourself and to hate them forever for doing so. Why? Because they presented you with ice-cold facts rather than with the warmth of truth in love. Why? Because due to the fact that they failed to operate on themselves when they turned to you, they botched that operation as well. It's often said, they don't care how much you know once they know.
how much you care. It's the key to the work of an office bearer. It's the key to being a member of the church. Let them know you care before you ever try to, 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 to do anything with them. They don't care how much you know as long as they know how much you care. The remedy is first take the log out of your own eye. For you know, amazing things happen when you do that. You can see much better then. And then actually you discover the people whom you were inclined to treat like dogs and pigs, they had their issues. They had their situation. They had their problems. And you come to know them and you discover they're not dogs. They're not pigs. They're people like you who are just hurting, struggling with the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of their own lives. There are people with weaknesses. And when you see that and you know that, then you can help. Then your words are different. Your tone is different. You are careful and you are loving. And the church and, and families, blessings come to them. And you can even be an instrument of blessing for God himself in the church of God. What's our Lord Jesus doing but exhorting us? You want a long sermon about this? Read the rest of the Gospels about the Lord Jesus. Observe Him as He acts. Observe Him and what He does. He lives this out. The Sermon on the Mount is something, not something He just preached. It's something He lived out. To live as He lived. To judge as He judged. To be living, loving as He was. Is He not the very best example of the very principles He teaches? Criticism, yes, when it's called for. Look, read passages about him with the Pharisees. He can criticize them. But not in hypercriticism, not hypocriticism, not, not criticism which exalts himself above somebody else. But always loving, always exemplary. And the resounding teaching of Scripture is when we are in him, this is the Spirit's project to make us like him. That's why the Spirit is so powerful. That's why the church is so powerful. In the church, we have something of the new creation. We have an example of the new creation among the people of God because these people, they live differently. They work with each other differently. They love each other differently. This is the power of the Spirit of God. When we are in Him, the Spirit makes us like Him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. May the Spirit work mightily among us all. Amen.